Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Leisure Class. I'm your host, Jack Sonny, and I am really stoked today to be having a conversation about one of my favorite writers of all times, Hunter S. Thompson. My guest today is Peter Richardson, who has written a new book, Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson and the Weird Road to Gonzo, which focuses on Thompson's writing more so than any of the other books that I've read about him since most are sort of anecdotal stories about more about Thompson's outrageous lifestyle and character than the writing. And Savage Journey is really the first one that I've read that focuses on the writing and why Thompson deserves the acclaim he has received over the years. Richardson dives into how Thompson developed his unique style. And this came about by Thompson blurring the lines between fiction and reporting. He inserted himself in his stories in a very, very active way. And in essence, created a new genre of writing, which is called gonzo journalism. His work, Strange and Terrible Saga of the Hell's Angels, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, and of course his most famous work, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, really cemented his legacy as one of the great American writers. Hyperbolic style, really, he was a satirist in the same league as someone like Mark Twain, and really needs to be read as such. It, that doesn't take away from the importance of his uh, political commentary, which throughout the late 60s and into the early 70s was just absolutely scathing and fantastic. And he did create this larger-than-life character in himself who influenced several generations of writers, including myself. Thompson was an enigmatic character, a little bit of a conundrum, but he was a staunch defender of individual freedom. And he wrote about the American dream and was just adamant about the promise of independence that the American dream held. And he was brutal on anyone and anything that he felt was encroaching on that freedom and that promise. And Richardson's book, Savage Journey, does a great job, really a great job at shining a light into the heart of the man and the inspiration for his work. Peter, it is a real pleasure to meet you, and I really appreciate you joining us today. Um, oh, my pleasure. Awesome. You're up in Glen Ellen, right? Right. That, yeah, right, okay. Yeah. I, I lived in Healdsburg for a bit, so I know, know no the kidding. area. Yeah, yeah man, beautiful yeah. spot. You know, so good to see. And you probably know that Hunter Thompson lived here for a better part of a year back in the day. Well, I I didn't until I read the book. I didn't realize yeah. that you know that he was up that way. Um, yeah, I wanted I want to jump right in for you know first of all uh, I've been a fan you know my entire life big influence on my writing and obviously just having grown up in that era he was you know the spokesman. Um, but I, one of the first questions I'd, I'd like to ask you is why. Why the book on Hunter? 
what was it about it that attracted you to to want to do this book, especially with the angle that you took? Yeah, well, I've always been uh, attracted to his his writing. I mean, I grew up with it like a lot of other people and enjoyed it. Um, but it was only when I started sort of writing about related topics and went back to some of the stuff that he'd written. And um, then I had to tear myself away from from his story so that I could get back to the one that I was working on. And I really realized that his voice, not just in his published work, but especially in his correspondence, for example, it was just this incredible, vital, funny, wild, audacious voice that he had. And I just thought, wow, you know, quite aside from his persona and you know, his celebrity, I, I really felt like, you know, and I, I know other people feel this way too, many aficionados that, that were, were in danger of kind of losing sight of his, of his virtuosity as a writer, um, partly because the appeal of his persona is so broad and, and deep. And, you know, there's a, that, that, you know, cannot be minimized. And I, I wouldn't want to put people off of um, whatever it is that attracts them to to Hunter Thompson and his work. But I think the work has been obscured in a way that doesn't do him a service. I mean, my last book was about the Grateful Dead, and I think right. something similar happened there as well, that they had a very interesting project um, that had been kind of flattened out and turned into kind of a stereotype or even a cartoon. I mean, in, in Thompson's case, literally – I mean, he was made into a cartoon. Right. So to me, it was, it was a matter of going back after five decades and saying, hey, let's look at this and see what holds up and, and you know, what doesn't. It's not all of it does. But what, what holds up is really, really remarkable. It is. Uh, I, and I appreciate the fact that I've read a lot of the biographies and a lot of the writing about Hunter and a lot of it is so anecdotal about his character and about, you know, his outrageousness and all of that, that the writing does get obscured. And I think that because of his style, having been so hyperbolic and outrageous and, and so different at the time, that that, in a way, also obscured the brilliance of his wit and what he accomplished in this sort of new journalism, gonzo journalism thing of putting himself in the story and being an yeah. active participant in it, which had really not been explored too much um, previously. I mean, you know, the other, the other part of it is I think he's been so popular for so long. He's been a celebrity since the mid 1970s that there, there seems to be something inevitable about his success. And the more I, the more closely I looked at his correspondence and his, his struggle, you know, to, to pull together what we now think of as, you know, gonzo journalism, his kind of signature style and body of work, there was nothing inevitable about that. There was, it was almost an accident. And, um, and there was nothing guaranteed about it. And he really struggled with it. I think that, I think the impression out there is that, you know, here was a guy who, you know, got high and, and wrote about his experiences and, you know, that, that was, that's very seductive. I mean, I think that a lot of people thought that's all you really needed to do. And um, what, what, what we all know now, I think, is that, you know, it's almost impossible to imitate because yeah. nobody could really do it the way that he did it. There are a lot of complicated reasons for that. But 
But one of them was, you know, he was just an exceptionally gifted comic stylist. And um, that's another thing that gets lost is that he served this long apprenticeship and had many false starts and setbacks. I mean, he, he didn't sit down one day and say, you know, I'm going to create gonzo journalism. And there are moments I opened the book with one of them where, where he was really struggling with it and really didn't, really didn't see a way forward. This is before his first work of gonzo journalism, which, frankly, he thought was a brutal failure. When he when he first published it, yeah, so, I got that from the book. Yeah, you know, there's this sense. I mean, he he was so he seemed so confident and so assertive and and so assured. I think that that it's easy to overlook how much he really he really struggled to to get it right and to get it the way that eventually came out. And and even then, you know, there was only really only one outfit, one or two outfits, one or two publications that were willing to publish it. Right. Yeah, and that's the other thing, you know. Is, I mean, you know, Playboy magazine wasn't going to publish it. They were they were spiking his stuff. You know, Esquire wasn't going to publish it. it. It really needed a vehicle like first Scanlon's Monthly, right. edited by Warren Hinkle, and then even more importantly, Rolling Stone magazine, um, edited by Jan Wenner, to really become the 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 important contribution that it that it did. Yeah, that vehicle um, at the time, it, it really just uh, magic, really, when you think about, you know, sort of the happy act. Well, it's not all incredibly an accident, but like you say, he worked really hard at it. He worked really hard at just writing, period, um, yeah. which, you yeah. know, comes across in the book and also, but, you know, the other things that I've read where he spent, you know, time typing out Hemingway, typing out uh, Fitzgerald mm-hmm. to get the rhythm and to get, you know, really approaching it like a musician um, right. where, right. you know, musicians, we sit down and we learn note by note, you know, note for note, a solo or a piece of piece of music to get to understand it, to then absorb it and make it our own. And that's what he eventually, I think, did. And Yeah. And he got a lot of help from some very skilled editors, you know, I mean, both with the story ideas and then later with, with the actual execution uh, of the story and, and, and piecing them to get piecing those stories together. I mean, once he became an important, you know, uh, kind of brand almost, uh, he got a lot of editorial support more than any I've ever heard of any author getting from a publication. Yeah. When you, it was, it was really extraordinary. When you describe the, the seal beach, when he holds up in the, in the hotel and, that whole sort of mojo wire sending bits and pieces and, and all of that. I mean, as a struggling writer myself and dealing with publishers and agents, it's like, nah, that's never going to yeah. happen, man. You know, so mm-hmm. it was, uh, he definitely had a supportive network because it, what he was doing was incredibly important and brilliant. There's just no, yeah. you know, no doubt about it. You know, you mentioned the drugs and, and sort of that whole um, sort of idea that, that it just came so naturally. That's a myth of, of so many mm-hmm. um, art forms, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it's either the tortured artist or that somehow the drugs have un- unlocked some kind of, kind of thing that sort of disregards all of the work that's been done to get to that right. point. Um, yeah, yeah. There's also, you know, the, the, the arc of his career. I mean, you know, m- many of his most important contributions, I'm thinking now of the, book about the 1972 presidential campaign, you think, well, yeah, of course, 
you know, he, he, he killed that. That was a perfect project for him. And, and, and he, and he delivered and he had another big critical and commercial success. And he became the sort of um, the king of Gonzo. But when you look at the, at the setup, what went into that and, and the things that he had to overcome, you know, not necessarily as a writer, he knew, he, he knew what he wanted to do by that, by that time, but, but really as a reporter, he was never, he was never known for being, you know, an exceptional reporter, but to go out on the campaign trail with all those skilled professionals from all these major news outlets, I mean, you gotta, you got, and you know, he's at the bottom of the bottom rung of the, of the ladder there. And somehow he manages to turn it to advantage. And I mean, that, that, the story of that is also, I think, worth telling. And not, not only, you know, again, if we're thinking about people who might be influenced by, by Thompson's example, I mean, a really positive way I think you can be influenced by his example is to look at the sheer kind of resourcefulness that he brought to that project. Because, I mean, I think most people going into that would have just said, what am I doing here? You know, I'm here with all these people from CBS News and the Washington Post and the New York Times, and they they have sources and they know what they're doing. And, you know, they know more about campaigns and candidates than I do and all that. I don't think it was really his expertise that got him through that project, though he worked hard at it, um, worked hard at learning all the mechanics of the campaigns and stuff. But it was really the 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 willingness to kind of discard all of the usual um, approaches, you know, taking care of sources, partly because he wasn't coming back, you know, he wasn't coming back to cover that story again, and that gave him tremendous independence. And then to be able to le- leverage that independence, I think, shows just how just how resourceful he was and how good it, he was at kind of finding something, finding some sort of purchase, some way into the thing that he wanted to do, and then just powering, powering through it. Always participatory, right? Mm-hmm. He's always part of the story that he's covering. And then the, uh, the other piece of that, of course, is that he was so good at talking about what the other media were doing, how they, how they were covering or miscovering or um, undercovering the real story as he understood it. So that was kind of his value proposition to his hippie, you know, readers at, at Rolling Stone was that, you know, I'll tell you what's going on on the campaign trail as I understand it. Also pull back the curtain and show you what, what the other media outlets are not telling you, even though they know it to be true. Right. And I know that because I've, you know, I'm at the bar with them every night and I, I know I, they, they tell me what they know, you know, so. Well, you do a, a great job of describing that. And I think one of the points that you make is the fact that because he was in that position and had the, you know, foresight to, to take that angle was that he was able to take his writers, um, sorry, his readers along with him in a way because they didn't, un- we don't understand that process either. We don't understand what goes on in the campaign trail. We don't understand the mechanics of all that stuff. So it was an educational process that really was a wonderful thing. Um, Yeah. Just wanted to mention that last night, one of my good friends down here in in Oxford happens to be Curtis Wilkie. And I was at at dinner with Curtis last night, and we were both reading the book. um, And he's enjoying the book a lot. Uh, 
we have coffee every Thursday morning, and we'll we'll be talking. No about kidding. It. Yeah, we'll be talking about it a wow. bit. But you know, he was good friends with Hunter, and and mm-hmm. was on the campaign trail. And I'm very interested to talk to him. And it's a little bit of an aside, sorry, but um, because you bring it up, how the usual press corps and Curtis is a brilliant journalist. He covered. I don't know, 13 campaigns in Washington correspondence. So he was in that mix of being right. the establishment, which he yeah. would not consider himself to be. But, you know, I'm interested to hear here's his take on uh, yeah. that particular piece yeah. of it. Well, I think a lot of the younger writers were really warmed up to him very quickly. You know, the, the younger writers on that beat. Were, were very interested in him and what he represented. I think the older writers were a little bit more, you know, skeptical. They, they didn't really see him as having earned his, his way into that position. Nobody read Rolling Stone. Nobody, I mean, it was only five years old. I mean, who cared what Rolling Stone thought about the presidential cam- campaign? Now, Rolling Stone cared because they realized that it was the first presidential campaign that 18-year-olds could vote right. in. So they sort of understood, hey, you know, we have a, we have a way into this that, that other people might lack. And they really knew their own readership. And, and their readership was delighted by some of the stuff that, that Hunter pulled off. I mean, part of it was, you know, all the hoaxing and the, and the you know, sort of sa- the satirical stuff, you know, the invective and the put-downs going after Hubert Humphrey he was like the original troll. He, he was mm-hmm. a troll in so many mm-hmm. ways, just kind of yeah. putting the meat out there for these people. But um, yeah, and so he was, and he was, and he, he had a gift for it. I mean, he, it wasn't absolutely. it wasn't an accident that he went to that because he was good at it. But he combined it with this hyperbolic political commentary, and also the um, the media criticism, the super astute media criticism. Before that was really a thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, of course, Tim Krause, he gave, he, he directed Tim Krause or suggested to Tim Krause, who was his assistant, supposed to be his assistant on that job. Um, he said, Hey, keep an eye on these guys. Make, the, make the media your story and, and, and see what happens because he felt disrespected. Hunter did by the other reporters. So he, he saw though that there was a way that you could, you could turn the media coverage into kind of a story of it, of its own. And you know you can you can trace that back to to the way he covered the Hell's Angels story, you know, very participatory. But the first thing he did in the Hell's Angels story is said, "Put out of your mind everything that you've heard, that you've read about the Hell's Angels. It's all hogwash." You know, the New York Times can't cover this story. You know, Newsweek can't cover this story. Um, you can't even cover this story from a desk in San Francisco. You have to do what I'm doing. You have to go out and ride with the Hells Angels. So, you know, he got a lot of credit for that, for the kind of physical courage sure. that went along with that participatory reporting. And then, you know, that, that kind of set him up. But even then, we're, we're going kind of backwards in time now. But even then, he wasn't that interested in politics. You know, that really came after 1968, you know, would, in the mid-60s, early 60s, yeah, in Chicago especially. But in before that, he was really working in kind of Tom Wolfe's groove and doing these kind of, you know, uh, profiles of exotic... Lifestyle, you know, culture, things happening. Culture and right. co- subcultures, yeah. really, you know, and... and um, and he was good at that too, 
But when he made the political turn, when he really decided to, to go to go after the political class, I think um, that that's really what what um, separated him from 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 some of the other voices. For the other the voices, time. yeah. One of the things that um, struck me in in this, I mean, you're talking about San Francisco for sure. You know, Thompson came. He, he was born in Louisville, Kentucky. He, he's a Southern guy. I never mm-hmm. really sort of associated him with southern writers so much because Mm -hmm. he really embraced what was going on in in san francisco and that became i think his launching pad as you as you put out there um he's an enigma in so many ways man you know going into the political world that he did with the angle that he did you know he's he is a southern guy he's fairly racist at times there's no you know no doubt about that that he sends some words around that you know mm-hmm. we, we don't say any longer um mm-hmm. and um i think that uh it it's been a puzzle for me this this guy who is aligned with the counterculture to some degree but is also yeah. a gun-toting you know yeah. and he calls himself a hillbilly redneck basically um, right. <laughs> so, right, right yeah yeah no he was never a flower child you know that's for sure i mean i think he really um especially later after he left um san francisco bay area i think he really came to understand that it was it was super important for him and his literary formation and the the relationships that he made there i mean that's that's how he meets ken kesey you know that's how he meets warren hinkle who publishes fear and uh i mean um the kentucky derby is decadent and depraved That's, you know, indirectly, that's how he meets Jan Wenner as well. So, so even though he leaves in what the fall of 1966, he leaves the Bay Area and he'd only been there for about four years. I mean, it's really, I think it's much more formative even than his, than his upbringing in, in, um, in Louisville or the sports reporting that he did before that. Now, those things never really go away. I mean, he he carries those things with him, I think. Um, and you know he shrugs off some of the some of the more obvious forms of racism, but he he's still using racial epithets kind of for humor, in a way sometimes, yeah. or certainly for shock value. Yes, I would say I for think. shock value. And you know that, and that's what he liked to do. You know, he liked to get reactions from people, and even his own friends would say that. His closest friends would say that he was always kind of testing you in that way, even in conversation, you know, to try to get a rise out of you. Right. And so, you know, that, that's the part that pe- that readers today are, are certainly going to recoil from. And, and, you know, it's interesting for a while. I thought, how do I position this? Mm-hmm. You know, and I realized that, you know, the more I sat with it, the more I realized, you know, you can't really run, you know, uh, the cordon sanitaire around him and say, well, yeah, that, but we want to just look at the work here. Right. I mean, you know, he was drawing moral judgments in his work, like all satirists. I mean, he was, he was, he, you know, his work is saturated with moral judgments. His work was not read, meant, you know, written to be read in a moral vacuum. And so, you know, I, I think, Hey, let's, let's make our judgments, you know, yeah. Let's do it on the far side of some sort of, you know, close reading of his of his work. And, I mean, broadly defined, I think, to include his, his correspondence and such. Right. And I think, you know, that's sometimes what's missing is the, you know, is our is our rush to judgment on things. 
And, you know, having made that, having made the effort to kind of sit with that material for a while, I think it's, I'm much more comfortable, you know, saying, hey, yeah, you know, he he had a lot of shortcomings. Right. And it affected his work. And um, not to mention his relationships. And, you know, we can say that too. And that's not that unusual for a lot of, for a lot of artists. True. When yeah. You, the more you know about their personal lives, especially. Which is what you're going to get from the letters, right? You're going to get that sort of personal, you know, communication with friends and, you know, understand what, you know, where he's at that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily come out in his work. You know, you're talking about the instigation and sort of the provocateur piece of his thing and, and reading the book and thinking about everything that I've read of his, it's like his participatory piece of it is almost like, how, I, how some people play chess. They don't know how to play chess. They just move pieces around to see what will happen. You know, and it's kind of like, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go ride with the Hells Angels, but I'm not going to ride a Harley. I'm right. going to ride it. Right. It was a BSA or a Norton or something. Yeah, I, yeah, know? yeah. It's just, right. I'm going to do right. something. Well, he just didn't want to like, be, I don't think he wanted to be mistaken mistake, right. for Hells Angels. Right. They wouldn't have permitted that anyway. That's probably true. And so he needed to kind of keep some sort of, he had to have some sort of relationship that was sustainable both for him and them. And, but, you know, he was no, I mean, he was no fan, right? I mean, he detected in them, speaking of racism, I mean, and that's the other thing about Hunter Thompson. He really understood the power of race. And I think, you know, sometimes you can get caught, you know, playing with matches next to the powder keg. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a whole different, that's a whole different thing. But he understood that power. He also understood, um, you know, this, this kind of the political dimension of what the hell's angels were up to. They weren't, you know, political theorists or anything like that. They didn't have thought out political positions. They, they were much more visceral, but he, but he associated them he, he said they had a fascist outlook. Right. And he, he also said, if you, you know, even if the Hells Angels don't grow as an organization, their position, their outlook is going to grow. There are going to be more and more people like that. And that, that's the kind of thing where you think that's pretty prophetic. You know, he's saying that in 1965, 1966. Yep. And then eventually, of course, um, his editor on that article, Kerry McWilliams, McWilliams' granddaughter who teaches pol- political theory down at, um, you know, here in, um, in, uh, in California, Pomona mm-hmm. College. She's the one who writes the, the, an essay for the Nation magazine and says, guess who predicted the rise of Donald Trump? Right. No, you know? There's so much of that in, in this book. And you bring that out. I mean, it was one of the first things that, that struck me, not only in the media pieces, but the lying and, you know, the pointing out of the hypocrisy is like, it's kind of ironic that it's happening. We're talking, we're having this conversation two days before the January 6th hearings. You yeah. know, it's just yeah. so prophetic. And I can't even imagine what he would be if he were alive. What? what yeah, be I'm sure to. he would be screaming at the top of his lungs, yeah. but I don't think he would be surprised. I, no. don't, I don't think he was surprised by Altamont, for example, right. and the way the Hells Angels behaved there. And I don't think he would have been totally surprised. Indeed, I think he was trying to warn us about these things way back in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. And, of course, it was dismissed at the time as hyperbolic, right. you know, over the top, which it, which it was. I mean, don't forget, he's, he, 
he he compared Richard Nixon to a werewolf right. you know, just a few days after <laughs> <laughs> Nixon was reelected in a landslide, yeah. you know? So, you know, yes, it was hyperbolic. Yes, it was over the top. Yes, it was super visceral, yep. you know? It was based on grudges. I mean, many, well, many, yeah. many times they were, they were like these vendettas against specific people. Well, but there's a kind of truth to that, too, I think. I, yeah, I think so. And um, there's two things that I just sort of want to touch on while, I, while I've got you. Is one, you know, his background, you talk about his, you know, understanding the power of race and all that. He understood the power of class. I mean, growing up in Louisville, as he did, you know, kind of alcoholic mo- mother on the poor side of, of that town, but spending all of his time with the wealthy, you know, scions of that town and seeing mm-hmm. the privilege that that opened up for so many of those people. And I think he held a grudge against that all of his life, right? Yeah. And pointing yeah, that out I to all, all these people that were part. The thing that comes out in your book as well, and something that I think to me is one of the most fascinating aspects of, of Hunter Thompson's work is his obsession with the American dream mm-hmm. and trying to understand what, do you have like a clear picture of what his vision of the American dream was that pissed him off so much that it wasn't happening or that it was getting yeah. lost? Yeah. I try to, I try to sketch that out. I was sort of surprised um, when I, when I made this connection, but I think he had a notion of the American dream that was a little older than the one that most people think of, you know, I mean, we think of the American dream as kind of coming together, um, you know, in the early late part of the 19th century, early, you know, through Hollywood largely um, is really, but they took some of the, some of the elements that were, you know, in the culture at the time, and they and they fashioned them into something that we now recognize as the American dream, which, of course, the, you know, the people who founded these studios, who were Jewish immigrants, were largely excluded from. I mean, for them, it was a right. kind of a, it was a conception, a kind of idealization of American life that they were then selling back to, to the to American audiences, and and it was a it was always a myth, of course. I mean, it never described the situation on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was aspirational, right? So, so that, that's what we're shooting for. And I think it was aspirational for Hunter Thompson as well. But I think he understood the American dream in a kind of older, even kind of antique version that he would have traced back to, to Thomas Jefferson. And that was more about independence, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of being, being independent of other people and other institutions and maybe having your own farm. It's a kind of agrarian. Mm-hmm. version of the of the american dream and i think i think hunter thompson really bought into that his independence was very important to him Absolutely. i mean that that's you can't understand his work or the decisions that he made as a person or as a writer until you understand that mostly he wanted to preserve establish and preserve his independence so he needed a lot of help to do that that's the paradox yeah. right but i mean you need people to help you if you're gonna if you're gonna be as independent as he really wanted to be. He was a freelancer his whole life. He, he really right. wasn't a very good employee. He lost every job, really, that he managed to get. So the freelance status was very important to him. And I think he saw in that the, 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 the vision that Thomas Jefferson had was that all of these small farmers were going were gonna, to you know, be the kind of civic backbone of America as it grew. Now, you know, that, that was being 
you know, overtaken on the ground, uh, you know, in the middle of the 19th century with mechanization, the industrial revolution, the railroads, mining, you know, labor unions and corporations and, and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, you know, the, the attack on, the attack on independence started, you know, well before Hunter Thompson ever came around. But I think that was his American dream was the ability as to, to go out, you know, and to buy a piece of land as he did, mm-hmm. you know, and to kind of post up in this bucolic place and, and earn his living, you know, kind of, um, you know, tilling the fields of American culture as it were. So that, that was, that was his, that was his dream. Um, and it was very tightly held. I, I don't think he had a lot of critical distance from it and he saw a lot of threats to it. I think that's, know? yeah, that's where I was going to ask was, was that yeah. obviously he, he felt that the power structure that was in place was, you know, everything against that, 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 that it was just taking those opportunities away, um, to make that happen. Uh, right. Right. And, you know, he, and he put a face on it, which is what he usually did. Right. So who were the people that were doing that to right. us? You know, that that was the thing that he wasn't interested in making claims and giving you some statistical evidence to support his claims and stuff like that. Mostly he wanted to sort of identify some people, some problems, put a face on them and then go after those people. And one of them, the, the main one, of course, was Richard Nixon. Yeah. And as, as Bill McKean, uh, one, of, one of Hunter's biographers, has said, Nixon was really his muse. I mean, Nixon kind of, he hated, Thompson hated Nixon so much that it kind of drew out his best work. He was a little disappointed, I think, when, when a little depressed when, when Nixon resigned, you know. But, he, but when, he, when he was going after Nixon, you know, he, he came alive and it pushed his prose to these very, you know, new places and very dark register, really. For sure. And, and even, even his obituary for Nixon, which didn't come out until the 1990s, well after, you know, Thompson's work had peaked, um, that obituary is a keeper. You know, there, there are a few of them after that, you know, come after 1980 or so, 1975 even. But that Nixon obituary is certainly, certainly one of his masterpieces. Fantastic. Peter, I can't thank you enough, man. Uh, is there anything that I want to give you the last word here as we're <laughs> as we're talking? And uh, again, I want to thank you so much for for joining us. And it's great, great work. Savage Journey is is a fantastic book, and I can't recommend it highly enough to anybody who's thank interested you. in not just not just Hunter Thompson, but in in great writing and what it takes to yeah. be an artist. Um, yeah, which, which I think no, you do I think a great that's job. really important. And I think I think the other thing to 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 keep to keep in mind as as you think about him is is his period in place, you know, because I I don't think he could have done it ten years before or ten years after, and so really understanding what was what was up for grabs, you know, and between 1965 and 1975 is really critical for for assessing his achievement, which I think was very significant. Yeah. Agreed. Thank you so much, man. And thank you for having me. My thanks to our guest, Peter Richardson. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. And I hope you find yourself inspired to pick up a copy of his book, Savage Journey. Go back and revisit the works of the great Hunter Thompson. If you've read them before, if you haven't, 
please check it out. You will be amazed at how prophetic, as we talked about in the conversation, his writing is forecasting the landscape of our American life today. Please check out our other episodes, subscribe, and it means the world to us if you can take a second and give us that nice, sweet five-star rating. Hey, I'm your host, Jack Sonny. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leisure Class, brought to you by the good folks at Newsweek. Catch you next time.